When I was a kid growing up, I didn't like to do chores at all. I hated doing chores. And uh, my dad would say something to me. Uh, I think he said it a few times. It's something like this. He'd say, well, you are a part of this family. And because you're a part of this family and live at this house, there are some things that you have to do. You have to take out the garbage or do the dishes or whatnot. But there's one thing he didn't ever say. He never said if you want to become a part of this family, then you have to do the dishes and take out the trash and do your chores. It was because I was part of the family already that I had to do the chores. In the scripture, we kind of see the same pattern. We see what theologians call the indicative and the imperative. The indicative is kind of who we are, and the imperative is what we're supposed to do from the fact of who we are. Now, last week we looked at the reality of the gospel and what God has done for us in Jesus, and we looked at how the gospel is to provoke some things in us, it's to provoke worship, it's to provoke this kind of optimistic realism. And this week we're going to look at kind of the implications of the gospel, and we're going to ask ourselves the question, in light of the gospel, in light of what Jesus has done for us, how should we live our lives? So that's the question we're going to be looking at today. And note that Peter, as we look at these commands, we're going to be looking at four commands that Peter gives us today. Note what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, do these commands so that you might be born again. He says, because you are born again, because you know Christ, therefore do these things. Sometimes people can get caught up in that. They can get tripped up where they think that they have to do these commands, and then if they do these commands, then God will accept them and then become a part of God's family. It's not that way at all. It's the other way around. We become a part of God's family. And then he commands us to be changed, to be conformed to his image. So what are these four commands that he tells us to do in this passage? The first command he tells us is to set our minds on the future. Set your minds on the future. Look at what he says in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action... And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now this phrase for preparing your minds for action is an interesting phrase. It can, it can literally, literally be translated, girding up the loins of your mind. Girding up the loins of your mind. It sounds a little bit strange to us, but oftentimes in the Jewish world they would wear long robes. And when they were ready to move or ready to run, they would take the long robe and they would tuck it into their belt so their legs would be free to roam about. We see that this happened in the Exodus years and years before. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 11, uh, God is telling the Israelites about how to eat the Passover meal. And he says, this is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. See, at that time in Israel, Israel's history, the Israelites were about to be delivered to the promised land, delivered from being slaves in Egypt. And God is telling them to eat their Passover meal with the cloak tucked in their belt. In other words, he's saying, be ready to move. Be ready to go. And I think Peter is telling his readers the same thing. Peter calls his readers exiles in verse 1. Strangers. They're in places that are not their own. And so Peter says, be ready to move. Be prepared to go. And the way that he says to do that is by being sober-minded 
or self-controlled. In other words, we're not to plunge headlong into the ways of our culture and our world, but we're rather to live with the end in mind. To be ready for the future. To be ready for the grace that's going to be revealed to us in the last day. We're not to allow addictions or the trappings of this world to dull our senses and to keep us from what's most important. And so Peter says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be yours when Christ comes back. Author Peter Kraft asks us to imagine the day when sin, death, and the grave are finally defeated by Christ. He says, suppose God took you on a crystal ball trip into your future. And you saw with indubitable certainty that despite everything, your sin, your smallness, your stupidity, you could, have, you could have free for the asking your whole crazy heart's deepest desire. Heaven. Eternal joy. Would you not return fearless and singing? What can earth do to you if you're guaranteed heaven? To fear the worst earthly loss would be like a millionaire fearing the loss of a penny. Less a scratch on a penny. So in the midst of a the context of trials and persecution that the readers, Peter's readers are going through, Peter tells them, don't be bogged down by this world. Don't be lulled into complacency. Set your hope fully on the grace that's going to be revealed to you in Christ. So that's the first thing he tells us. Set your hope on the future. The second thing he tells us is to be holy. Now the term holy, holy has gotten a really bad rap. When we think about holy, we think about the term holier than thou. And often we think about holiness as kind of a judgmentalism where one person thinks that they're better than another person. If you called somebody holy, they might even take offense at that term. But holiness in God's economy simply means to be set apart. And uh, when God called Israel out of Egypt, when he rescued them from being slaves, he created a new people who would resemble God. And they would be a separate people that would not look like the other nations. They wouldn't worship idols. They wouldn't defraud their neighbor. They wouldn't practice abominable uh, practices like child sacrifices. They'd be a different sort of people, a people that resemble God's heart. And the scriptures call us as believers, even as New Testament believers, to be holy. It's a requirement for being a Christian. In Hebrews it says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Peter quotes a passage from Leviticus that says, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now the particulars are different. We don't need to necessarily follow all the Old Testament civil and ceremonial laws that were given for Israel in that time in history. But the call to be different, to be set apart, is something that applies to us as believers today. That we're going to handle our money different. To handle relationships differently. That we're going to reflect God in everything that we do. That we're going to stand out from the culture around us because of our God. And the text goes on and says, And if you call on Him who, and, and him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds... Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So as believers, we have God as our Heavenly Father. He loves us. He gave His Son for us. Yet our Father is also the judge of the living and the dead. And so Peter says, live your time in fear. Some people kind of soften that a little bit by saying that it's just supposed to be kind of an awe of God or respect of God. And I kind of understand that, but... There is a sense in which we are to fear God. 
I remember, you know, growing up, my dad loved me, but I knew that I couldn't cross him. I knew that if I did something wrong, that there was a punishment that was coming, that there was going to be consequences for my actions. I think the same thing is true for our relationship with God. Yes, God's our Father. Yes, He's given Himself for us. Yes, He's got our best interests in mind, but He's also the judge of the living and the dead. And we're going to have to stand and give account before Him. There's going to be consequences for our actions. And so Peter says, don't take advantage of your heavenly Father. Just because He loves you, just because He gave this for you, don't take advantage of Him. Don't treat Him lightly. Live your time in fear because there's consequences for your actions. And ultimately, the reason that we don't take it lightly, that we don't mess with our Heavenly Father, is because the cost of our freedom was so great and so costly to God and to His Son, Jesus. It talks about the idea of redemption in this passage. Redemption was something that was common in ancient Israel, uh, where a slave could be redeemed by paying a certain uh, price, and then they would gain their freedom. But it also happened in the ancient Greco-Roman world. And in the ancient Greco-Roman world where Peter's audience lived, when a slave wanted to be free, he would have to either earn money or somebody else would have to pay money for him. And they would have to bring the money to the temple of a particular god or goddess. You know, say Zeus or Artemis or, or whatnot. And so they would bring the money to this, the temple of this particular god And then the temple administrator or the priest would take the money and then they would pay that money to the slave's owner. Then the slave would be free from their earthly master, but it would be understood that that particular God, whosever temple it was, was the one who bought their freedom. And so in a sense, they would be considered slaves to that particular God or deity. Now the... What's interesting is the amount of money that was paid for uh, the slaves released was called in Greek the Timae. Now Peter says in this passage that believers were not bought with silver or gold, but with the precious or Timaeo blood of Christ. God paid a huge price for our redemption. It wasn't gold or silver, but the Timaeo, the precious blood of Christ. And because of that redemption, we're free from sin, we're free from death, but we're also slaves to God. We're slaves, but we're also children. And because of that, we're supposed to live lives in a way that reflect His glory. And so Peter tells his readers, be holy, be like God, be set apart. Your redemption was costly. You now belong to God. So he tells us, be holy. Third, he tells us, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The text says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Indicating one of the goals of salvation, one of the goals for why Christ saved us is that we would love one another. First, that we would love God. Second, that we would love one another. That we'd lay down our pride and our rivalry, our desire to be right and love one another. And then he goes on and he says that we're to love one another because believers have been born of an imperishable seed. Now when we're talking about a perishable seed, we're talking about the natural order of birth and the the natural sense, the perishable seed is the father's sperm. The father is perishable, his 
Sperm is perishable. And even the seed that creates a baby is in the end perishable as the baby will eventually grow up and die. But Peter says that you were born with an imperishable seed, the Word of God. And because you were born with the Word of God, born again with the Word of God, you'll live forever. And so how does that relate to loving one another? And I struggled with this as I read the text this week. How does the fact that we're to live forever relate to the fact that we should love one another? Well, first, I think that the only way that we can truly love one another is if we have a view of the future, if we have our eternity figured out, if we're not trying to achieve our best life now. But second, as we look at this passage, it says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, when the text says that, the you is in the plural. You corporately, or as they say in the South, y'all. Y'all have been born again with an imperishable seed, which means y'all are going to live forever. Everyone who's a believer in Jesus. And if we're going to all live together corporately, we better start getting along now. If everyone else that you know that is a believer is going to spend forever with you, you better start loving them now. Because you've got all eternity to be with them. And so Peter tells us, love one another earnestly with a pure heart. And then finally, Peter gives us one final command. He says, crave pure milk. Now, when many interpreters read this passage about the pure spiritual milk, most interpreters suggest that this milk is the Word of God, that we're to crave the Word of God. Now, that's true that we should crave the Word of God, and that's a possible interpretation. But in the previous verses, when Peter refers to the Word of God, he refers to it as the seed that causes believers to be born again. Likewise, when Peter quotes the passage that he quotes in, uh, two verse, in chapter 2, verse 3 from Psalm 34, there's no mention of the Word of God in the context of that passage he quotes. So Peter might, in, might be intending something a little bit more general when he's talking about the Word of God, or when he's talking about the pure milk. Now the Greek word for spiritual, that's translated spiritual uh, in this passage, is the, is the word logikos. And this word is often translated It could be translated as spiritual, but it's often translated as rational or reasonable. And the Stoics believed that something called the Lagos was kind of an inanimate force that kind of governed the world, that kind of gave order and reason to the universe. It wasn't like God, it was just kind of like this spiritual force that gave order to the universe. And the Stoics believed that that things that were kind of in accordance with this logos were logikos. And so they translated it as rational or reasonable because it was in accordance with the way that the logos had ordered things. Now, the Peter and the apostle used the word logos very differently. For them, logos refers to the word of God. The word of God who, that creates, the word of God that causes us to be born again. And so what Peter may be doing here is he may be stealing a word from the Stoics. And so when Peter says, crave pure logikos milk, he might be intending to describe that we should, uh, we should crave those things that accord with what the logos, what God has created. 
In other words, believers are to crave pure milk that's in accordance with the new birth that God has caused in our hearts. That believers are to crave sustenance and strength that comes only from God that's going to build us up. And we see in this passage that there is kind of a contrast between the things that will build us up, that will strengthen us, and the things that will tear us down and make us weak. And he says the things of the world are those things that will cause you to be weak. Going back to the metaphor of feeding, there are things that will make us sick. Things that are opposed to the reality of what God has done in the gospel. Things like malice, evil in general. Things like deceit or hypocrisy, which is essentially living a deceitful life. He warns us against envy, which is the opposite of love and seeks the advancement of self rather than the advancement of others. He warns us against slander, spreading falsehoods about others, but also spreading truths about others that may make them look bad intentionally. And so Peter says, crave the things that are in accord with the word of God. Crave the things that are in accord with the new birth that God has created in your hearts. Don't feed the old man. Don't go back to these ways of relating that are going to weaken you, that are going to weaken the body of Christ. Crave the things that are in accordance with the gospel. C.S. Lewis writes this, Every time you make a choice, you're turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you're slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature. Either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to one state or the other. That's where we're at. We're either craving pure milk, the things that are in accord with the gospel, or we're feeding the flesh. We're feeding the sinful man that's going to weaken us, that's going to weaken the body of Christ. So those are the four commands. We're to look to the future. Look to what God is going to do. Not be lulled into complacency. We're to be holy as God is holy. That we're to be set apart. That we're, going to, that we're to be different in the culture we live in. That we're to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Knowing that we'll spend forever with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Knowing that Christ has bought, purchased our freedom. And that we're to crave pure spiritual milk. Crave the things that are in accord with the gospel, not the things that feed the old man. And as we do these things, it's difficult sometimes. It's difficult to conform ourselves to the image of Christ. We can only do it with God's help, with God's strength. But ultimately, we know that our efforts are not in vain. Our efforts are worth it. Recently, the famous St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City was renovated at the cost of $177 million. The New York Magazine summarized the project like this. They said the original construction lasted 20 years from cornerstone to the dedication in 1878. 
The current restoration took another nine. More than 150 workers directed by the architecture firm Murphy, Burnham, and Bertrick made 30,000 separate interventions, planned and tracked with advanced software, but executed by hand. Workers filled the interior with a, a city of scaffolding. Specialists climbed to heal cracks and stained glass. Fixed shattered bits of tracery with invisible puzzle pieces of steel. Scours stood off blackened marble. Rebuild eroded filigree. Replace crumbling stones. Replaster ribbed vaults. And revive wooden screens. The most impressive tasks aren't even visible. Replacing the entire cooling and the heating system. And hooking them up to geothermal wells that have been sunk up to 2,200 feet below Manhattan's asphalt crust. And then you ask yourself the question, was it all worth it? Was it worth all that effort? Was it worth all that money? The article continues and says, Before the restoration, sunlight struggled through darkened windows and got sucked into gray-green vaults. Now the stained glass glows and the ceiling restored to its original patterns of pale ochre on plaster. Painted to resemble stone spreads light on the nave below. It was a costly project. Involved a lot of work, a lot of detail, but in the end, it was worth it. In the end, it made a dark, dreary building into something that was, once again, beautiful. And I think that's what God does with us. He took something costly. He gave His own Son so that we would be saved, so that we could spend forever with Him, but also so that we would become more like Him, so that we would be holy, so that we would be set apart. And everything that we do is based upon the reality of what He's done for us. And so as believers in Jesus, Peter is calling us to become who we are, to become what Christ has already done for us. To follow these commands, to live with the end in mind, to be holy, to love with a pure heart, to crave spiritual milk. Because as we do that, God is working in us to create something beautiful and something that's worth it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that any of our efforts, none of our efforts could ever merit your favor. That anything we do for you is 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 rooted in your prior action of what you've done for us. And we thank you for saving us, for making us new, for paying the ultimate price, sending your Son to the earth to die on the cross for our sins so that we could be free, so we could be free from sin, from death, from the grave, and so that we could become more like you. God, I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would give us the strength to do these things that you've called us to do in your Word that we would look to the future with anticipation. We wouldn't be sucked in by the things of this world. That we would be set apart and holy. That we would love each other as you have loved us. And that we would crave the things that are in accord with your gospel. And we trust that as we do that, Lord, you'll make something beautiful out of us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.